Cult Hackers and welcome to the podcast. I'm Celine, a media graduate with an interest in cults. And I'm Stephen Matha, I'm her dad. These days I'm trained as an organisational psychologist, but I was raised in a high control group or cult and I left when I was about 30, about when you were born, Celine. Um, right, this week we are very excited to have a very special guest. I think for most people listening to this podcast, Rachel Bernstein is a name that needs no introduction. She is a therapist working with ex-cult members. She works with the International Cultic Studies Association and is, of course, the host Host of the indoctrination podcast welcome rachel to cult hackers it is my pleasure to be here and to speak with both of you you're both so lovely and so wise <laughs> and conversations are fantastic oh lovely thanks ever so much and we of course were your guests a few weeks ago um so it's lovely to have you back have you back to our place yes <laughs> nice very nice um so i suppose the first thing i, I wanted to know a little bit about Rachel is your background really uh we know you obviously as being somebody that talks a lot about cults and um obviously this part of you is very well known to us but um how did you get into this thing why did you start to get interested in cults it's a great question you know a lot of the people who get involved in this field have had personal experiences they themselves uh, have had a brush with a cult in one way or another um I mean, you know, in my adult life, I did have a long-term relationship with someone who turned out to be uh, narcissistic. And I found myself, um, as I was counseling clients who had gotten out of cults, saying to myself, hmm, uh, I should be listening to this too. Uh, and uh, and I've since expanded my practice to work with people who have been mm-hmm. in relationships with narcissists and controllers because it's so similar. So yes, I have had my personal experience there. I had a personal experience kind of adjacent. When I was growing up, um, I have a sibling who got involved in Scientology. uh, And as brief as it was, we could see the sudden personality shift. We could see that there was uh, secrecy and there was a change in language about what things meant. Like it had really started to work on her head. And... um, all of her funds were gone. We were raised in our family to be working from a young age. You know, if you mm. want to have money to, to buy something, you need to earn it. Yeah. Um, and so she worked hard uh, doing whatever she was doing. And uh, then suddenly it was all liquidated and um, given over. And I noticed in, um, uh, I mean, I don't want to get too lost in the weeds here, but this is an important piece of the story that um, at one point, she said to my parents, uh, I know we don't always get along. She's someone who likes to do her own thing at all hours of the day and night. Uh, <laughs> so I know we have tension. Um, but my friend who got me into this says that her relationship with her parents has never been better. And um, so let's just, can we give it a shot? So um, it was getting worse and worse. And my father, even though my mom is lovely, uh, my father had this t- way of interacting with her that I've since held on to. Um, it was not to be critical, but it was to be inquisitive. Mm. And it's a different way of approaching it, um, joining with the person, showing interest. And so she was able to be more open with him. And he said, would you mind if we called your friend's parents just to see if this really has helped, and if it has, great. You know, we'll we'll let this go. This was before there was any news about Scientology. This was before there were books about it. The only right. books out there were written by L. Ron Hubbard. That's not helpful. So 
Um, she, so my folks called her friends, folks, and they said, where did you see our daughter? And it was this panicked response. And they said, what do you mean? Well, she, hmm. she moved out of the house six months ago. We don't know where she is. So this was her getting along better with her parents, according to the church. So that actually floored my sibling um, and uh, caused her to, to pull away. But we could see the tentacles were already in her and they wouldn't leave her alone. She had to, we had to tell people at her school not to let them come and visit. We had to, uh, I mean, it was crazy. They were after her. Um, and that was also something that I've, you know, I've had with me working with people where they, they have a hard time just being free from it. So then to make this answer just slightly longer, but just to bring you to why I got started in the field, it was dinner table conversation that families could be torn apart, that people could be torn apart and that there isn't something really that you can do to prevent it necessarily. And that people are out there lying in wait, trying to just pounce on people uh, and take them over. And that's a tremendous amount of hubris and it's just entitlement and wrong. Mm. Um, and then I had learned about some cult groups that had front names that they went by to hide themselves. And, you know, when you hear about these things, you start to wonder if the people telling you these stories are a bit paranoid. <laughs> You're like, really? There are these fun groups. And then I went away to school and I saw them. I saw them in student union. I saw them uh, with their tables out on the sidewalk beckoning students to come and join. And I knew what they were and students were signing up. And I thought, wow, this really is happening in real time in front of me. And then I went on for graduate school. Um, My background was in special ed as an undergrad. Then I went to graduate school right away to become a therapist um, and there was a course you had to take where you learned how to do group therapy and it was run like a cult. And it was fascinating for me to watch this unfold because the person in charge made a hierarchy. If you were willing to share more about yourself or any of your tragedies or traumas, um, then you were more liked. Um, she would put her arm around you and like, there was sort of like the inner circle um, there were the people who were excluded. Um, you were told that you were resisting if you didn't have a horror story to share. Like it must be that you have all that everyone is the same somehow, and you're yep. just withholding this information. You're judged. And so I did a social experiment there. Uh, from what I had learned, now I'd already attended a cult conference because I'd become more interested. And I just made up a story because I thought she's not my real therapist. She's my teacher. These are not my friends. These are, this is a class. So I just made up a story. Suddenly everyone loved me. I was invited out for coffee. I was told I was a good student. My grade went up. And I thought, if this is something that can happen at a university, this is a major university, uh, what's to say this is not happening out there and there are no safeguards out there. So then I just, um, uh, because I was at a conference with someone who was working at a place called the Cult Clinic that was part of Jewish Family Service in LA, it's now no longer Scientology effectively closed it through their pressure. But um, she said, I've only been there a year. I'm the only clinician there. What do you feel like having the job? And I said, I would love it, love it, love it. And that's how I got started. 
I don't want to ask you how many years you've been doing this because that That's might fine. be a bit rude, but can I ask you how many years you've been doing <laughs> no, I don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. Uh, it's been 32 years that I've been doing this. Uh, and it's always been about 70 to 80% of my practice. There, I still work with general clients uh, every once in a while. I call them palate cleansers because <laughs> there's no mothership involved. There's just yeah. a teenage daughter having some issues with her mom. I'm like, oh, sure. okay, yes, that's easy. Normal problems. Um, uh, but um, yeah, since for 32 years, I've been running also support groups for people who have been involved in cults and for families to guide them. Uh, doing this work in LA, starting in LA, and then um, moving to New York and doing it at a place that was uh, the cult hotline and clinic, also part of the Jewish Board of Family and Children's Services. Um, there are a disproportionate number of Jews who get involved in cults, and I think that's why these Jewish organizations uh, were trying to reach out, uh, even though it was non-denominational and you know you didn't have to necessarily be Jewish to receive help from these places, but they were housed at these places to reach out and to to try to address that issue. Um, and it's been great, and it's been great to see different trends and and also expansion of an awareness of mm -hmm. what a cult is and how to include other elements into it, um, like undue influence and those kinds of manipulations and within organizations and relationships, the one-on-one -on -one cults, you know, it's mm. been, it's been great to see that it's become a more sophisticated vision of what this is and what it includes and where it can happen. Yeah. That, I mean, that's my, that was the thrust of my question really. You've, you've anticipated it, which is, um, you know, what, what has changed over that period? Cause that's, you've got a very nice overview of this field of, of expertise, Mm, um, yeah. you've talked about some of those things yet um, there already is there anything else what's sort of changed over that time frame yeah I think uh, to a great degree there's been uh, and I'm so grateful for this less stigmatization um, mm. and uh, a bit even though there's still a ways to go uh, but but a little bit less of blaming the victim you know, I mean, you still have it. Even people who stay in abusive relationships, their question, well, why did you stay? Well, no, okay, can we not focus on me for a moment here? Yeah. Um, there are lots of reasons people stay. I did a whole video about that, why people stay in bad situations. And and then also, let's change the subject. Um, let's find out how we can protect people from them or how people notice them sooner or what they need in order to be able to leave sooner, not what's wrong with them that they stayed or what's wrong with them mm. that they didn't notice it to begin with. So I think people are fe feeling more free to say what happened to them and also access then the help that they need without as much stigmatization. Um, what's also been interesting to see is the shift in the way you intervene. So while I do mostly counseling, I also every once in a while am, am brought on board to do an intervention and exit counseling. And, you know, the way that I remember learning about it when I was first starting, uh, I thought it was tremendously problematic where, you know, if someone gets sort of kidnapped into a group and then they just get kidnapped out, I'm not sure how that's helpful unless their <laughs> life is on the line, right? Um, but sure. you're just sort of yanking them in another direction. They don't have a sense of agency. It wasn't their choice. People are going to be searching for them for the cult, trying to take them back. They'll feel they abandoned God or the cause. or what. It's a, it's a very difficult thing to do and traumatizing for them. Mm. 
And so the work that I do is now benefited from, and the intervention work that I do is benefited from the people who I do it with, who have learned this way of approaching people with a great amount of respect and openness and just really having a conversation in, in the hope that something clicks and helps them to mm, even you offer them seeds and you hope they germinate and then they can think about leaving and really look at what they're involved in uh, in a new way um, and feel safe enough to leave it. Um, so I like the softer, more respectful style of the way people intervene now. And so um I, I think, you know, another trend is that, you know, we, we're we trying to combat um, how many cults do their recruiting online now. Mm. And so they have an, a limitless reach and can also be very good at marketing themselves. And it makes it so much easier to get involved in a cult or to follow a charlatan or a grifter because you just have to turn on your phone or your computer. You don't even have to leave your home. And so being able to then approach it in a different way. And I, I think the challenge there is not so much just to keep a list of all the groups you need to watch out for because they grow and change all the time. But instead, like through the podcast, and one of the reasons I started it was to help people see what things to look out for. So that when they go to an ad or a pop-up or there's some kind of um, through marketing, you know, internet's mm -hmm. great at marketing, um, something that finds its way to them uh, based on previous searches of theirs, they'll know that there are some red flags and mm -hmm. what they are and what to do and how to notice them. Yeah, yours must have been one of the first podcasts, Rachel. You, you, your podcast has been around for quite some time. Um, I guess you've you've seen a proliferation of people like us, um, and lots more um, joining this this band. Um, how do you sort of respond to that? <laughs> um, I think it's great. I think everyone has their own way of approaching it mm. and their own reason for doing it. Being a counselor, I think, uh, I think it's a healing process for the people who host them as well. Mm, um, yes. And so I'm happy for them that they get this opportunity. Um, it's also something that leaves people um, open for criticism, which can be hard. And there are people who have started their own podcasts who have contacted me for some counsel uh, yeah. over this time because, you know, now they're getting attacked, which, you know, has happened to me throughout my years with Scientology, especially um, with them trying to, you know, um, mm complain to my board over and over again, have my license taken away. They, they've they gone after me quite a bit. But um, And whenever there is a um, podcast where I have someone who's a former Scientologist or when I had L. Ron Hubbard's great-grandson on, um, Scientologists then give one-star or two-star ratings to bring my ratings down just because they don't like the subject. Mm -hmm. uh, they're really mature. And um, so what is also interesting to see is that I feel like there's room for all of us, even though I do think there are some people, um, and of course, I would never mention the names of people or the names of no. these podcasts, but they send a confusing message. Um, I feel like in this world, things need to be very clear about kind of what's kosher and what isn't. Um, but I hear people on 
um, certain podcasts that they've started because they've had their own experience or because it's just of interest to them, advocating for people who I think are not so safe and techniques that are not tried and true and that are just as sort of new agey or different yeah. or culty, you know, mm-hmm. and there's just still too much of emerging, it's too gray. Uh, and so it feels to me like they need to have a little more clarity um, before um, being out there and being a voice. Um, and um, it's not, I think it's not without a pure intention, but it's just not a safe message and a clear message. Um, but I, I do think that one of the things that I like to build in, and this happened after the first session, with not sessions. I, I'm so used to talking in sessions. The first episode, um, I wanted to give it to um, Patricia Ryan, who's the daughter of Leo J. Ryan, who's the congressman who was killed in Jonestown when he was trying to save the people there, mm-hmm. trying to save his yep. constituents. And for a lot of people of my generation, this was the first time we heard about mm. cults and mass killings. I don't even want to call them suicides, mass killings. Mm. Um, and what can happen? What can go wrong? And so I called Patricia, who I'd met at conferences and spoken on panels with. And I said, I want to honor your father and you by having you be the first episode. And it was very powerful. And she talked about um, driving over the Golden Gate Bridge and hearing the news of her father being killed um, at Jonestown. And it was it was very chilling. Mm-hmm. Um and then it, the, the episode finished, and I thought, there's something missing here for me, not for her. She was fantastic. But there is this piece, because I coming from an educational background, I thought, I need to add this addendum. I don't know what to call it. And I thought, what would I, what would I say? Maybe I need to say something like, before you leave, no, leaving's too negative. How about maybe one more thing before you go? I thought, okay, that's, that feels, that works for me. And let me kind of dive into a subject that was brought up or an idea or something Mm -hmm. that piggybacks this, that kind of wraps it up with a bow a little bit better. And you have a little nugget of info that you can take with you and generalize Mm -hmm. into your life, use in your life. Um, And so that part has been great. And there's some teachers and social work uh, professors who have said that they've compiled the outros the one more thing before you go into workbooks and i mean that's been quite lovely to know um because that was just me feeling like but but what does it all mean and Mm. and now what do i do with that information how do i use it i needed to add that that's really interesting I, i liked that little bit that you do um and you did that with our interview as well and um yeah, that's a really nice. I wouldn't, I wouldn't um, presume to to try that myself, but I think you do it really well, and you have a a really lovely way of just summarising and finding something there that okay, this is your little nugget to take away with you, which I think is is really really lovely. Um, Celine, um, what questions have you got for Rachel? Because I'm hogging the yeah, conversation. That's right. I've, I've kept them <laughs> as post its. Um, <laughs> um, so I just wanted to go back to one of the things you said. Um, fairly early on because it just kind of made me remember something that uh, me and dad have spoken about before so when you mentioned um, sort of seeing your siblings or changing in front of you um, and that was obviously quite a powerful moment and 
the fact a big driving force in your family and yourself wanting to know what's mm-hmm. going on it might be interesting I don't know if it's a question so much as I want to start a conversation between you two <laughs> um about um the the two sides of that in the sense of like I remember dad you've said before when you were in the group in in the court group that would be something you would also see from the other side and everyone would be like oh isn't this good mm-hmm. <laughs> look at them becoming the new person did you want to I just wondered if you wanted to talk about that because I just thought that was a really interesting thing and I felt like you'd both have interesting points to discuss <laughs> yeah yeah I, I, I suppose coming coming off the back of that um yeah I mean we there's a there's a part um there's a scripture in the bible that talks about putting on the new personality and um which you know is an interesting phrase from a psychologist's perspective <laughs> But um, we would notice things like the person um, starts to wear a suit or wears a tie um, when they come to the meetings or um, stops living with their girlfriend um, or, you know, starts to the the speech would change and so on. And, And we would see that as a really positive thing. But I guess from the perspective of their family, that would be pretty disturbing so yeah do you want to talk about that a bit what that looks like from your perspective yeah oh it's great Celine I'm so glad you brought this up because um you know when you start noticing changes you what one of the things that is alarming sometimes is that the person who's changing is not noticing the changes Mm -hmm. they're so into needing to please the people around them that mm, they become chameleon-like Um, which we all have the propensity to do at times. Um, But you see them slipping into someone else, into this alternate state uh, without self-awareness. And so you wonder how lost they're going to get. And also you wonder what it is about uh, them that they were wanting to change potentially, or what it is about the group that they, the group feels they need to change these things. And it's very often the things that make you, you, the things that make you an individual, um, that you're not supposed to follow your own dreams and, um, have your own, you sort of use your own imagination about who you are and what you want to be and what you want to do. And the conformity is become so great that then you have people who are just all, acting the same. And so again, what is it about the group? Is that for them to be able to control you or do they have an ideal for how everyone should be or a little bit of both? Um, I, I think what's also interesting about seeing these changes is um, now having worked with, you know, like, the, I don't know, a couple thousand people who have been involved in cults over right. the years. They've talked about needing to figure out who they are Uh, how they feel, mm, what mood is right for that situation, you know, just sort of the life things that people learn as they grow up in the world outside, or people who had a certain persona, then learn to become kind of this empty vessel, you know, and really lose themselves Mm -hmm. to be filled up by the ideal of the group, are trying to find a way to reconnect to themselves. And that is a difficult thing. Like, can, you know, how do do I get reminded of who I used to be and what I used to like and what was okay? It's also hard because each cult group also has its own 
not only a, an idealized sense of how you're supposed to be, but they have their own value system too. Things that are okay in a cult are not necessarily okay in, in outside. And so you have to relearn everything at times. And people will, like in the support group, one of the support group sessions I had was last night. They talk a lot about trying to um, discard the part of them that really wasn't ever them, but that they had to adopt and how to also make sense of that. What is it about them that, um, that they can take on now and feel good about and feel like really fits. They must have to try things on. I, I have with some of the people who have left cults, they'll come on the screen now because the, a lot of the groups I do are on zoom. They'll come on the screen with a certain name. And the name will be one they were given in the group. And over the course of groups, I see them in the chat box requesting to put the new name on that they're trying out uh, or the name they used to go by. And just being renamed, knowing mm -hmm. who you are and who you want to be is a very powerful thing. These are the things that typical therapists running groups are not going to be dealing with. But these are the, the nuanced changes about identity that we need to address really interesting so see it's it's um so complicated in the sense of the, the there's two parts of like like you say not noticing themselves changing but also the immense effort to behave and be a certain way similar but they're both true at the same time I think yeah. um because yeah. we you know we talk about uh, a lot of people come on the show and I think dad can speak to this as well about the amount of um effort to to mask as a person right in that group but also like you say it also is sort of second nature um it's just like this really heavy weight that you're used to carrying um so it's it's, it's just not yes yeah, completely two incongruent things but they are true at the same time <laughs> right <laughs> It is something I wanted to talk to you about, Rachel. Um, you know, I, I've been out 25 years now, so I'm quite long in the tooth, really, in terms of my journey. Still not finished. I don't think any of us finish it entirely. Um, but I know, I, I can't remember when it happened, but these days people talk about our identity all the time. You know, we're we're, we're swimming in a in a pond of, of identity, Um talking about it but in back in sort of 10 15 years ago that wasn't the case but i do remember um suddenly because i didn't have any um counseling i didn't go through any of that i mean we're talking about as i say 20 odd years ago it just wasn't it wasn't really right. a thing then for me so i just sort of did the best i could but i remember after sort of 10 years or so it just twigging that the facts why I was struggling, it was this question of identity. Who am I? Because of course, I was raised as a Jehovah's Witness. I was raised in it, 
third generation. So not only me, but my parents and all my cousins and aunties and uncles and so on. Mm -hmm. Most of them anyway were Jehovah's Witnesses. So it was completely who I was. When you leave that, you've just, it just feels overwhelming. So I wanted to ask you about that feeling and um, how you help people who are going through that process. So, right. You know, I think about this also have with me having left a, a relationship with a narcissist where your role is to feed them yeah. and, uh, and you don't matter and you can lose sight of, uh, what you want and who you are and your personality gets crushed too. People don't even quite recognize you. I remember when I came out of that relationship, people said, we lost you. Well, mm -hmm. you're, you're, you're coming back. There's light in your eyes. And I remember when I started dating somebody new after, of course, I was really not trusting anyone. And mm -hmm. so he had to prove a lot to me. Um, <laughs> but I remember him asking me, if I wanted some water now, the, like not a big deal, but, and then he said, yeah. do you want it with ice or not? And I thought that's a choice. <laughs> you get to choose things. You get to have a preference mm -hmm. and it's okay. Mm -hmm. And it's not a trap. He's not going to call me demanding. If I ask for ice, it, like I'm not going to get yelled at. And uh, I remember breaking out into a sweat and he said, it's just a question about ice. I said, no, mm. <laughs> but it never was before. It was a test. Mm. Mm. And I would also not be asked what I wanted anyway. It was my job to ask this person. But still, it's very interesting moving out of this. So when people say, you know, who am I? Especially coming to something with many generations. Mm. Um, because I've been asked that question so often, I've thought, I need to find a way to respond to this. Um, and... One of the things that I say, one of a couple of things I start with saying is, it is okay to start defining you, but know that just before when you had to be a certain way and that was codified, that was set in stone, it doesn't have to be anymore. Just as people, when they're growing up in the world, they grow and they change and they think they're something and then they realize they're something else. Yeah. Yeah. Where they're following how their parents believed, and now they realize they're not a liberal, they're a conservative, or conservative, whatever it is. They grow into themselves. So I introduce the idea of, of fluidity to identity, which mm. I think is really important to know. You're not letting yourself down. You're not not being like yourself if you're acting in a different way. You're just shifting and changing as you grow or mature or get exposed to other ideas and other ways of being, and or you start to enjoy some freedoms that you didn't realize you could enjoy. And then maybe you realize, oh, I actually like to do interpretive dance. I was never allowed to do my own steps. I had to do exactly as everyone else, but I like to do mm. you know, something that's my own. So to, to address it as something fluid, except the things that are not fluid usually are your core your value system, the things that really bother you, the things that really speak to you, but everything else is sort of icing. And I think movable and changeable, and that's okay. And the other thing is to decide, I think first what you're not before you know what you are. So if you are no longer a believer in a God, or you're not sure, so maybe you're not that. If you are not someone who 
has ever felt good, let's say, about talking down to a woman or assuming she doesn't have the rights that you have. You're not that. And so that means, what does that mean about you? There are things that I think it's easier to sort of cross things off the list and narrow down then the identity to see what's left and then what you want to address. So, and then we can get into sort of how to, how to build up who you are, but that those are the two places I usually start with people. I love that. I think that's absolutely brilliant. And and I, I really, I mean, Celine knows I've, I bang on about this all the time, but I, I think there's a, there's a risk that um, especially for born in members, ex members of groups that we feel like at this very daunting task all of a sudden that is building our personality or our self however we define that self or our identity from scratch and that's too daunting for anybody and and I, i love this idea of actually you know these things are fluid and it's okay to experiment a bit and to try this out and actually this is normal people do this all the time sure as somebody that was raised in a certain type of group a high control group a cult there's an extra layer on top of that but i think this let's take off the pressure let's just reduce some of that pressure to try and build your your whole personality from scratch that that's brilliant yeah totally right because it's not something you have to prove to someone else anymore yeah yeah yeah. and so because of that no one's following you with a clipboard you know take notes make sure that you're doing so so you can transform and this can be a dialogue you have with you Mm. Uh, and no one else needs to be privy unless you want them to be. Um, so really this is, this is a personal journey and, um, and it is good to know. I mean, a lot of people will be afraid of choosing things, choosing identities, choosing philosophies, theologies, um, because they feel that then they have to stay with that. Mm. Um, but they really don't. I think it's good to experiment along the way and, kind of have a, I don't know, treat life like a, like a buffet. <laughs> you just go and <laughs> try out different things, see what you like, uh, and try it again next year. See if those likes have changed. I think as well, it's, it's, um, really key to highlight what you've both said about, yeah, like it being movable. And also, I guess just on top of that, it's not, it's not too late as well in the sense of, I think sometimes it was like, Oh, I'm at this age now where I should just know who I am and that's mm-hmm. done. And mm-hmm. I don't think there is a point at which you go, well, I'm I'm complete now. I have successfully found me and that's it. Um your life will change and you will change forever, I guess. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 Oh, absolutely. I think about I mean, not to reveal so much about my own mom, who I was the youngest in the family. My father called me the caboose. I came way after my siblings. <laughs> um, <laughs> my mom just turned 90, actually. She's doing great. Um, she's changed uh, mm. recently. I mean, she has a, you know, a grandchild who's trans. And that was not on her radar before. And she's you know, she's fine with different pronouns and she's fine with whatever they are because she's happy that they're happy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think in the 40s, 50s, 60s, that, that was going to be mm-hmm. her attitude about it. Um, she also now loves Stevie Wonder <laughs> because mm-hmm. her, one of her doctors plays R&B and other things in the waiting room. And uh, she just said, I love that Stevie Wonder boy. I'm like, he's not really a boy. <laughs> I know you're just hearing of him, but... 
<laughs> he's, he's been around a bit. I love him too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. there are likes and there are principles mm. and there are values and there's openness and there's also a shutting down of being open, but it you can transform, you know, the whole idea that you can't uh, teach an old dog new tricks. You absolutely can. I know I have a 16 year old dog who just learned how to do something recently. Um, and so it's never exactly to your point, Celine, it is never too late as long as you give yourself that permission. Oh, that's a really optimistic view. I really, I really like that, Rachel. Um, so that, that sort of speaks to the, I think the increasing of knowledge and understanding of this phenomena and the improvements that have happened over the years in how we deal with it. You've already mentioned about how we intervene now um, in terms of helping people who might be getting involved in these groups and how we, we change the way we do that. So for you, what's what's been the big changes? And what I suppose my other question is, uh, what still do we need to know more about in relation to this phenomena of cults and being members of high control groups or even relationships? What do we need to know more about in terms of the psychology of this? Right. So I think um, people, uh, well, I, I wish that this were um, regular curriculum in schools so people mm. could be learning about this from a young age um, because uh, kids are going to start dealing with this early on. You know, there's this phenomenon, I don't know if it's called the same thing where you are, but the idea of the queen bees and the wannabes, the, 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 we have this idea here and it's not just, I mean, it's said for girls, but it's also for boys. Um, there are going to be some manipulators who are going to see a crowd as an opportunity to take over and to be mean and to pit people against mm. each other and watch them fight and have that control and other people want to please them and will do whatever they want and will you know want to be included and sit with them at the lunch table whatever it is so there is that dynamic that starts happening even in preschool and so i think for kids to know socially what they're sometimes dealing with and how it's not their job to forfeit themselves to please the person who is the most difficult to please um, or who seems the coolest or most important. But but you'll see that very young. And so just the social dynamic, I think, needs to be taught more. It, and instead of just us trying to figure out what to do when people are now independent adults and they find themselves in these situations, they've already been conditioned for decades yes. to be open to this. Um, and there are some people also who really need to learn how to use their voice. They are conflict averse and they don't really have a place where they can learn that. I think also in schools, it would be great if people could learn how to say what's on their mind without fear, um, how to not have to go along with things um, just to avoid a fight. Um, because that's also why a lot of people say yes when they needed to say no. Um there is something also that I that I think needs to be addressed, which is um, needing to figure out how to see if the information you're being given is true. Because there are a lot of people who make a lot of decisions based on news that is not well-informed or just mm -hmm. very purposely fake. So same thing with cult leaders who will promise you the world. Um, and you want to notice if the thing they're promising you is realistic. 
if it's ever been given to anyone else there, uh, or if they keep making you have to jump through more hoops in order to potentially get this thing that they promised, sort of how to tell if someone is using you, how to tell if someone is stringing you along. Um, and then again, what to do when that happens, how to feel brave enough to say something or to leave. I think what we also need to do, and this is a broader issue, but I think we have to build up more of a feeling of community because I think people are looking for connection and community. And when there's isolation, like during the pandemic, people were getting involved in cults in droves uh, because they're, they're lonely. Um, and so I think if there was more of an effort for communities to really be communities, that would help a lot. Um, but I think also what we're seeing too is that um, this is bleeding into politics and conspiracy theories and um, causing people to um, make some very poor decisions in terms of their social interactions and um, put themselves at risk. Uh, because they're caught up in this sort of torch and pitchfork way of thinking about something and they have to defend the country or defend themselves. And just like with anything, you want, it's like when I'm given a study to read, I don't read the study first. I read not who published it, but who funded it. Mm. And then who published it. And then I read the study because I want to know if there's an agenda. Mm. Um because if let's say um if something came out that said like ketchup kills people or everyone who who whatever has ketchup dies or something and you find out it's funded by sort of the mustard growers of america whatever it is right find out find out right um and uh and so see what you're dealing with and what what they have to gain not you but what they have to gain by making you believe something. That, that's interesting. Um, we, we've spoken about this before. I mean, we, we tend to call this critical thinking, but mm-hmm. um, it's, it, it, and it's interesting that um, Celine, you, you said that um, history was the, yeah, was the topic that you learned most about this in your yeah. schooling. Well, we do um, at least, uh, sorry, sort of in England, you do source-based analysis as part of your history education. So you will, Sit, one of the exams, the entire exam's focus is that you will receive five sources. So like um, maybe a poster, maybe um, an article, sort of snippet, something, uh, a letter that was sent to somebody. Um, you'll have the dates, who it was by, that kind of information. And then the point is with your knowledge of the time, context of who sent it or um, behind it, what what article printed it, your job is now to use the evidence provided to either prove or disprove the statement provided. So if it's, yeah, so if it's something like um, to do with, like we had like a political exam, history exam in sort of 1900s politics, it'll be like some, a statement about that time. Is this true? You need to use these sources. Um, And you might come out and say with the sources provided, it's too hard to tell and that's fine. So long as you can evidence it. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's kind of the whole exam. And I think that was really useful, <laughs> ah, uh, really yeah. great thing. But the thing that's sad is history is um, a, I think in the States called like an elective. So from a certain point, you wouldn't have to do that. So I got to do that because it was my choice um, for options. So I picked it, whereas someone else 
won't necessarily have done that. I think that was really useful and would be beneficial to everybody to do that. Um, and, you know, it doesn't have to be done in a historical context, mm. but it, it just was useful as a tool. And it's kind of, you know, just my, my partner, for instance, didn't, didn't get to do that and didn't learn that he has his own critical thinking skills. He's, he's fine, but you know, it's a great thing that I got to do. That's not there for everybody. Yeah. And I would say the other thing um, is that even if you, so, so if you do look at this research from the mustard growers of America that tells you that um, <laughs> people are dying because of ketchup. Thing, but... I love that idea. Uh, yeah. That's so funny. <laughs> yeah. um, but, but, if you do, I mean, you need to know where that's come from and that then informs mm -hmm. you, but you still look at the research and you still mm. see, okay, what does the data say? So that's the other thing I think we're missing currently is that um, we, we're in a place where um, we dismiss anything that doesn't come from our side of the political aisle or from our sort of viewpoint. Um, so yeah, we need to know where it's come from. We need to know the agenda, if you like, or the spin that's on it, but if the data is still there and if it's good research, then actually that's still interesting. And we, I, I personally would like to know, okay, let's have a look at another study then. See, let's see what other yeah. people have found out about this. So um, that's the sort of um, way of thinking that we've lost, haven't we? Um, certainly you've spoken about it. We've lost it here, I think, in the UK as well. Yeah, cross-referencing, uh, all of it. You know, what? Yeah. one of the things that, um, has been helpful is to have news outlets that will collect data, collect articles and say, and, and show the level of bias in one direction yeah. or another. There's yeah. this uh, company ground news that I get my news from and, uh, and they don't necessarily agree with everything. They don't take a position. They just rate where, you know, mm. where this is coming from, sort of which side, just so you yep. know. And I think that's really helpful. It's it's sad that it's necessary, but it also, you know, Celine, I'm sure with learning about history, you know, um, fabricated news is not necessarily new, uh, yeah. right? It might exist years ago in hieroglyphics and now it's in print <laughs> and fonts, um, but still people will say what either they've been told or what they want people to believe um, and so it really is on you to try to figure it out and to be open to hearing other points of view. That's the other thing. Absolutely. Um, I, wanted, I wanted to, uh, in that sort of 10 minutes that we've got left, Rachel, I wanted to just talk a little bit about the state of play within the um, the ecosystem that is um, anti-cult activism, I suppose, and education in, in uh, warning about about cults and research and so on i know you're heavily involved with ICSA, the international cultic studies association i know you do a lot of work with those with that group mm -hmm. um where are we because i think there's um i've noticed some tension around some um perhaps um around first generation and second generation adult members and and i've found that a little bit worrying because I, I want us all to be fighting the right people but um uh, what's your sort of take on on all of this <laughs> <laughs> right it's interesting um some one of my colleagues called me solomonic because i there are people who do fight 
And then they'll sometimes call me. I got in a fight with this person because he said this or because he likes that person and because this person's a cult apologist and that person doesn't believe in this. And, and we are all on the same team. <laughs> it just doesn't feel like it at times, right? There's also competition, which is interesting. And I think there are people who might need more healing, again, not mentioning any names, because I really value the contribution that everyone makes. Sure. But I think coming out of, let's say, a cultic situation where you may have been in a leadership position, I think you're used to being a leader. Mm -hmm. And you're going to have a hard time with uh, what feels like someone kind of coming in and stealing something from you as though there's not enough room for everyone. Uh, because when you come from a strict hierarchy, there isn't room for everyone. But I do think there is here. And I I don't think there needs to be tension, but it's just, it's bound to happen. Um, with uh, ICSA, you know, yes, they're trying to address much more the next generations and the people who are the, the SGAs and first, second, third, fourth generation and their unique needs. And they're very real and people who feel that they were suddenly, you know, they, they had to land on earth and uh, haven't lived mm -hmm. on this planet yet. Um, and so that is quite a challenge and they do deserve a forum and they deserve to be heard and understood. It's also true that there are people in my field who are going to be, um, they're not going to be as willing, I think, to engage in conversation with people who they see are the enemy, people who might not feel as strongly and in the negative about a particular group. Um, I think everyone has been entitled to their opinion. I think it should be a place of great openness, especially because of the work that we do, uh, being uh, open-minded and open to new ideas, um, treating it with compassion, but also just as a scientist would, where you have conclusions based on new data and you need to be open to the new data. Um, when I when I go to a conference, um, I love how many people are able to speak from their own perspectives and, and but also I love when I learn about uh, the science of it. And this is something new that ICSA has really started to work on providing like the talks with um, uh, Yuval Laor about awe and um, and fervor and brain chemistry. And that helps, just as you were saying before, sort of seeing the broader issues. What is it about us that can be wound up into something? And how do we understand that? So it's not just, let's talk about Scientology um, and let's talk about whatever other group, um, but let's understand what the human condition is that lends itself to this and keeps, unfortunately, this problem going. Uh, I think there will always be cults um, because there are. there's always gonna be a part of our brains that at different parts in our lives are gonna be open to ideas where we're gonna think back and think, really, we believe that? Um, and you just need the right set of conditions or the right timing for it in your life. And then there are also gonna be people out there who see humans as prey and they love the game. And that's all they got. That's their skill set. They don't they they don't have marketable skills. They just know how to be a, a parasite, how to how to drain someone's power to feed themselves. And um and it's a sociopathy. And again, I think people will always a smaller percentage of the population, but still people will be born that way uh, or develop that way. 
And so I think this will always be a timely issue. Yeah, I'm so glad you said that about the science of, of all of this as well, because um, it's something that I'm very keen to, um, as best I can, to contribute to and to push for. Um, I, I mean, psychology is still a very young science. I mean, it's such a broad discipline. It's not all science, if I'm honest, but um, there's there's a whole lot of learning we need to do about why we do what we do, how we think, and the individual differences in people and the social effects on people versus the individual effects and so on and so on. It's so complicated that we're still kind of scratching around, I think, to try and understand it. If you layer on top of that cults and, and all their uh, their different uh, differences and obviously similarities, I think it, it is a complex picture. But I, the more we need to do more, I think, in terms of research and understand how all this works. Um, and that should then inform how we intervene and um, how we support and, and so on. That, that's my view. Right. I agree. I absolutely agree. And I think, you know, we want to do this to limit the power of the people out there who can yeah. do this to other people. We also want to limit the the sense of wasted time, the shame that comes mm. with snapping out of something at some point and thinking, what did I just do? Like, I just spent so much time devoted to someone who didn't deserve it. Uh, or I did things that were really against my core, mm. uh, but I felt absolutely right thinking that way and acting that way. And I think that's hard. You know, the the people who follow these groups, get involved in them are the ones who carry around the emotions after, not the leaders. They don't care. Yeah. Um, I mean, hearing this man who I talked to who was very involved in QAnon um, for many years and started one of these Reddit groups for QAnon casualties, what it's called. Um, and I don't know if I told this story when we were talking before, but he didn't realize how caught up he was in this. And he's a gentle, gentle, sweet guy, funny, lovely. But he caught his reflection in the mirrored glass outside a building, chanting for the death of Hillary Clinton, that she would be hanged in Times Square. And when he saw his face, he thought, I don't know that person. Who have I become? And I want to limit if I can, <laughs> yeah. the possibility that people have to go through that. That's a that's a great way to sort of finish, I guess. Other than to to ask what 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 have you got lined up for the future, Rachel? What are what are you doing? What what is your what are your plans um, <laughs> in the next few years? It's funny you're you're speaking my language. I <laughs> I always think about what's next and how to hold on to what I have and how to move move it with where it needs to go and what I see happening and trends right. at like expanding the the guests on the show to include mm, people who have been manipulated in theater programs, uh, uh, whatever it is, or, yeah. or their relationships, um, narcissists, etc. Because I want to incorporate more as the need is and the need grows and shifts. Um, and former white supremacists and people who really want to talk about how their mind was taken over um, and how the world is a gentler place than they were told. They actually don't mm -hmm. have to stay in these places in order to be safe. In fact, they're safer mm -hmm. out. Um, I am in the process of putting together a draft of a book, um, which I've been asked to write for many years and I haven't had the time, um, <laughs> but it's a kind of a little more clinical, not 
clinical mm-hmm. drive, but just how you do this work, because yeah. I feel like that's something that people could benefit from. And I get a lot of calls from therapists asking if I can guide them. Mm-hmm. Um, they have someone in their practice who's dealing with these issues. They don't know how to address them and they find themselves changing the subject because they don't know how to address it. And can I guide them in that way? And I really enjoy that. So I thought I'd try to put together something. Um, and just um, being a resource, going around and speaking and um, continuing the podcast and being on other people's podcasts, of course, like this, when you know they have questions for me and also doing a lot of guiding from behind the scenes uh, where people call me and say, I just may have bitten off more than I could chew. I started a show. I don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, can you tell me how to address this <laughs> issue and that issue? And I'm happy to happy to help with that too. Just sort of being this, a support team from behind the scenes mm-hmm. for other people launching their own way of doing you know, uh, their own healing and public education and prevention, which I really value. Well, I think we definitely need you, uh, Rachel. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. It's so nice to talk to both of you. I love, I mean, I'm just so enamored with this idea of having a, you know, father-daughter team on this. And um, it's, it's really so nice to be able to have this link between the two of you, you know, that will be forevermore. It's quite sweet and um, great to talk to you. And Celine, I really appreciated your questions today too. Thank you. Thank you so much for being on the show, Rachel. It's been brilliant having you on and good luck with everything you you do. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. And we can talk more about organizational psychology at some point i hope to because i think that's really an important thing when we talk about cults so maybe for another time i'm i'm happy to bore you to death um about (laughs) all of that anytime (laughs) and i'm happy to be bored (laughs) okay